real food is something the keto community can rally behind and support as we shift away from the sugary, grainy, starchy, food-like disease agents sold in grocery stores and more towards high-quality food that nourishes our bodies. That's why I love ButcherBox. Visit butcherbox.com jimmy and you'll get an exclusive deal on 100% grass-fed beef, organic chicken, and heritage breed pork delivered right to your door for $6.50 a meal. That includes free shipping and $10 off your order, plus a free smoked bratwurst. ButcherBox has a commitment to supplying only the very finest cuts of grass-fed and pastured meats you can find anywhere. The best and most convenient part for our busy lifestyles is they ship your box to wherever you are so you can fire up the grill and enjoy food you can believe in again. Again, it's ButcherBox. Visit ButcherBox.com Jimmy for this exclusive deal for my listeners. Mark your calendars now for the first ketogenic conference of 2017. It's the second annual conference on nutritional ketosis and metabolic therapeutics coming February 1st through the 4th, 2017 in Tampa, Florida. It is being held by Epigenics Foundation and the University of South Florida. They'll bring together a wide range of international experts speaking about the science and application of low-carbohydrate nutrition and metabolic therapies for the treatment and prevention of cancer, neurological diseases, metabolic disorders, and for optimizing health and human performance. Some of the speakers include Dr. Thomas Seafried, Dr. Jeff Volick, Dr. Dominique Diagostino, Dr. Eric Westman, and many more. For more information about this event, go to metabolictherapeutics.com or visit the show notes section and click on the conference banner. Tickets are now available for the second annual conference on nutritional ketosis and metabolic therapeutics coming February 1st through the 4th, 2017. Coming up in episode 1179, Dr. David Ludwig. Connecting and educating and making the world a more informed and healthier place. You're listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. You've helped change so many lives and give us all the courage to take on the rest of the world. This is the longest running health podcast on the air today. You've done so much to spread the word about how diet matters. Over 1,000 episodes strong and counting. The amount of lives that you've changed at this point is incalculable. And now, here's our host and international best-selling author you're like the LL Cool J of podcast Jimmy Moore Today's featured audio is from the 2016 On Nutritional Ketosis and Metabolic Therapeutics Conference that took place in Tampa, Florida earlier this year. Sign up now at metabolictherapeuticsconference.com for next year's Tampa event coming February 1st through the 4th, 2017. Uh, you know, always risky beginning a uh, talk with a title like this before dinner. So bear with me. Um, so the um, credit for the first iteration of the first law of thermodynamics goes to a, do I have a pointer? Yeah, there it is. Goes to this German fellow, Rudolf Clausius, in the 1800s. And he said, in a closed system, the increment of the energy, uh, in, energy uh, internal energy is equal to the difference between the heat accumulated by the system and the work done by it. In other words, energy can neither be created nor destroyed. 
And this law of thermodynamics can be applied to learning living systems with the familiar equation, calorie intake minus calorie expenditure equals calorie stored. In humans, most of our calories are stored as uh, fat, so we could say change in adiposity. Now, according to the conventional model, obesity is a failure in the voluntary control over calorie balance. In other words, in an environment with ubiquitous tasty foods, we easily overeat. You know, we just can't resist, we succumb to temptation, and we also don't have enough opportunities for, to burn off those calories. So there's an excess, which builds up in the bloodstream as circulating metabolic fuels, and they get forced into fat cells, making the fat cells anabolic and grow. The simple solution, of course, is just eat less and move more. We've heard it a thousand times. This conventional view emphasizes the individual's responsibility to control their, to consciously control their energy intake. For example, the USDA, choose my plate, says reaching a healthier weight is a balancing act. The secret is learning how to balance your energy in and energy out. And if you like energy balance, you've got to love a low-fat diet because fat is, of course, the most energy-dense of nutrients. And it's stored efficiently as body fat under the right hormonal conditions. You don't have to shuffle a lot of chemical reactions and burn off energy that way. And so for this reason, um, you know, it seems so intuitive. If you don't want fat on your body, don't put fat into your body. The first food guide pyramid, put fat at the top and we were supposed to load up on these carbohydrates. Remember, six to 11 servings a day. Uh, things didn't work out so well. Uh, this slide shows that you can, if you tell something to Americans long enough and hard enough, we eventually listen. And so fat intake under the exhortation of the government and then the food industry joined in with all of these you know, low fat, high processed carb foods, Fat intake has been coming down to near the government recommended 30%. Uh, of course, the obesity epidemic exploded during that time. That doesn't prove cause and effect, but it suggests that somehow this focus on reducing dietary fat might have missed the boat somehow. And the long-term randomized controlled trials really uh, identify uh, a fundamental problem. You know, this is the mother of all long-term nutrition studies, low-fat diet studies, 50,000 women, the Women's Health Initiative, put onto either a low-fat diet or a control diet. Now, this was biased to favor the low-fat diet because people in that group got intensive individual and group sessions. I think they got something like 16 sessions in the first year. Those in the control group got just written educational materials. And so you'd expect that much more intensive group to do better regardless of what you tell them. I mean, if you sit in the room with somebody 16 times uh, talking about their weight, they're gonna lose some weight temporarily and that probably explains this very modest decline in, BM in body weight of two kilos, but thereafter there was virtually no difference in body weight and nor was there any improvement in diabetes or, or, cardio, or, or cardiovascular disease or cancer or a range of other outcomes. 
So this study was considered a, uh, a failure in terms of public health prevention of chronic disease. And um, more recently, there are meta-analyses now that more fairly compare these diets where the low fat and a higher fat group get equal treatment intensity. Um, you know, this is a very basic principle in clinical trials, which many nutrition studies fail to adhere to. Uh, I was a co-author on this one. And in all of these cases, the higher fat control, be it uh, sort of a 40% Mediterranean diet or a very low carbohydrate diet, in all of these cases, the higher fat control, the, the low fat diet did less well than all of the other controls, raising the possibility that our primary approach to obesity prevention and heart disease and diabetes prevention for the last 50 years has done more harm than good. Of course, only one in six, you know, very few people can successfully lose weight on a low calorie diet. The, this study looks as nationally representative, suggesting that almost nobody you know, in conventional weight loss loses weight and keeps it off. This is just 10% of weight is really just a pretty low bar because many people are more than, much more than 10% overweight. And the same in pediatrics. Most interventions are just uh, clearly uh, ineffective. So we have to ask, why is this paradigm just eat a little less, move a little more. It's so simple. I mean, anybody should be able to do it. We have to ask, why has it failed? Well, one obvious problem with the paradigm is that it ignores a biological fact that's been known for essentially a century. That body weight is controlled by biological factors more so than willpower. You know, a complex interplay of hormones and neurological influences uh, and communication between organs in the brain that control body weight. For example, we know that when somebody at a baseline body weight, which is either could be a low body weight for somebody who's lean or a high body weight for somebody who is uh, who has obesity, when that person is weight reduced, they're putting on a low calorie diet, and their weight goes down, what happens? The body fights back. The first thing that happens is that they get hungrier, but also energy expenditure drops. And these primal physiological adaptations antagonize ongoing weight loss. It pushes weight back to where it started. But the opposite is also true. If somebody is overfed, and this has been done in research studies you know, for decades, um, first of all, in, in these overfeeding, force feeding studies, the participants are just as miserable as those in the starvation studies. They lose all interest in food, they're very uncomfortable, and their metabolism speeds up in an attempt to shed those extra calories, again, pushing them back down to where they started, giving rise to this notion of a body weight set point. But this notion has, raises two, um, two important questions. First, if there is this set point that we seem to defend, it seems pretty clear, right? You know, even people gaining weight, they're, they're still mostly in energy balance. I mean, people who are gaining two pounds a year 
which could explain the whole obesity epidemic, are still balancing their energy intake and expenditure to within 99%. So, but why is this defended level, why does it keep going up? Why are we getting heavier and heavier? And latest data suggests that we haven't plateaued. Maybe those children have, but adults are still getting heavier in the US. So why, what is continuing to bump up year after year our body weight set point? And more importantly, what can we do about it? Well, first off, we know that there's nothing wrong with the law of thermodynamics. That's a physics principle. But maybe our interpretations, our, our assumptions about causal direction are the problem. You know, we always think about the arrows flowing from left to right. Overeating causes us to gain weight. They're both happening. We're overeating and we're gaining weight. But what if it actually is happening in the other direction? So according to another way of thinking, um, we can call it the fat cell model of obesity or the insulin carbohydrate model, something has triggered our fat cells to go on calorie storage overdrive. So they start sucking in too many calories. And therefore, there are too few calories in the bloodstream. Remember in the last model, in the first, the typical way of thinking about it, there's too many calories in the blood. And they get forced into fat. In this alternative way of thinking about it, if the problem's in the fat cells, they're sucking up too many calories. There are too few in the bloodstream. And therefore, the brain does what it's supposed to do. It makes you hungry. The brain doesn't see that there's too many calories in fat, because we think of obesity as a state of excess. But according to this way of thinking, it's actually a state of starvation. Your body is starving because the fat in the calories in the fat cells can't get out. And so it makes you hungry. And it also makes you tired and fatigued to save calories. And in addition, there are other changes. Resting energy expenditure goes down, muscular efficiency goes up. Starvation responses. So if that's the case, then our approach to eat less and move more is gonna make that situation worse, right? It's gonna further restrict the fuel supply. It doesn't address the fundamental problem. Thus, it's symptomatic treatment doomed to failure potentially explaining why so few people can follow a calorie-restricted diet. So what is triggering our fat cells? Well, you've probably heard the I word uh, in this conference already. The most obvious factor is insulin. There are going to be, there are others we can discuss as we'll discuss as well, but the obvious one is insulin. I mean, insulin is the granddaddy of all anabolic hormones. Um, Sometimes refer to it as the miracle grow for your fat cells, just not the sort of miracle you want. Insulin regulates the availability of all of our metabolic fuels. It stimulates fat synthesis and deposition. It inhibits fat release from fat cells. What happens in diabetes? I mean, this is endocrinology 101. If someone with type 1, a kid with type 1 diabetes comes in, they haven't had enough insulin. They've got an autoimmune attack on their beta cells, so they're insulin deficient. And diabetes, the, you know, the three Ps, polyuria, uh, peeing too much, polydipsia, drinking too much, and the third P is what for the endocrinologist here? 
polyphagia, so eating too much. So, you know, these kids coming in, they're eating five, 7,000 calories a day. What happens to their weight? They're invariably losing weight. Without insulin, you can't get, you lose weight, you can't gain weight. Give them, with treatment, enough insulin and their trajectory returns back to where it should be. Give them too much insulin or start someone with type two diabetes on insulin and what happens? Weight gain. And in experimental animals, if you give animals uh, moderate doses of insulin, they get hungry and they start eating more. And what happens if you restrict their food intake, you put them on a diet and you keep them from getting heavy? They still have excess fat. So according to this, insulin is triggering our fat cells. And what's triggering the fats, the insulin? the highly processed carbohydrates that flooded our diet during the low-fat years. These raise insulin calorie for calorie more than any other food. And that's both the total amount, but also an important concept, the glycemic index, which reflects how food alters blood sugar in the postprandial phase. So white bread, white rice, potato products, prepared breakfast cereals, all these yum-yums that uh, we ate. The, the, the low-fat Twinkie, remember, it was marketed as a health food. That's going to raise your blood sugar a lot. Fruit, the main uh, calorie source in fruit is sugar, including fructose. That has a very modest effect on blood sugar because the st food structure and the, 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 the sugars are sequestered within the cellular structure of the fruit, so it takes a while for your digestive tract to pull out the sugar. So it never really exceeds the hepatic threshold for de novo lipogenesis. You never raise your insulin levels very much. Um, we'll, we'll come back to whether, you know, there are special cases where any carbohydrate is a problem, you know, which is of uh, obviously interest to, to this conference. So, Carbohydrate amount alone does not tell you how much insulin is, you're gonna make. And in fact, you make less insulin following fruit than you do after a burger with the same number of calories. Did you know that? Because protein also releases insulin. Slow act, low glycemic index carbohydrate is less in insulinogenic than animal protein. So you really need both of these to understand what's gonna happen to insulin after the, in the postprandial state. And in fact, when you get the both together, you can explain about 90% of the variance. So what happens after we eat foods, meals, with uh, varying in glycemic index or load? So in this case, um, veg, uh, this was a vegetable omelet with uh, fruit. So more fat and protein, less carbohydrate, no starch at all, no added sugar. Or, Instant oatmeal, which is highly processed, so it's going to digest quickly, versus steel cut oats. And these two had the same, we controlled for macronutrients and fiber, and even energy density. So here's what happened. So after we fed these 12, these were uh, adolescents with high body, ma body mass index, we gave them these meals. This is the instant oatmeal, the steel cut oats, or the vegetable omelet. And so initially, insulin, that rush in blood sugar, of course, is going to raise insulin the most after the high glycemic index meal. But 
we don't usually think about it, but glucagon is really um, a key, you know, under-appreciated um, hormone. We think of glucagon as like being a counter-regulatory hormone that happens during hypoglycemia. But I think the more important role of glucagon is early after a meal. Look what happens. Glucagon, so glucagon is like the yang to insulin's yin. It's the opposite. It does the opposite. Insulin is anabolic. Glucagon is catabolic. Insulin drives calories into storage. Glucagon counterbalances that and helps avoid too many calories being stored. It helps pull calories out. So after the low glycemic load meal, which had more protein, glucagon actually rose. And that's going to kind of balance insulin. But it, actually, but it was suppressed after the high glycemic index meal. That's a metabolic double whammy. You have too much anabolic, not enough catabolic. So those calories from the meal, as soon as they get absorbed, they're going right into storage. Liver, muscle, and fat. And then the persistent effects of this insulin are going to lock those cabinet doors closed. So then, after you've digested the, much of the food, blood sugar comes down, and you don't have the liver or the fat cells to release calories in a nice, easy way to buffer you. So blood sugar keeps going down into this hypoglycemic range, and probably as or more important, free fatty acids are suppressed. So at 4.5 hours, four hours, for example, or 4.5, four hours, free fatty acids are suppressed twice as much after the high glycemic index meal than the other two meals. And to demonstrate that the body really doesn't like this, look what happens to epinephrine or adrenaline. Same calories, but a counter-regulatory surge after the high glycemic index meal. That's something that you would happen during starvation. So it's accelerated starvation, in effect. And when you give free access to, when we gave free access to food, what is somebody who's feeling starving going to do? They ate much more, six or 700 calories more after the high than after the low glycemic meal. Um, what happens in the brain around this? Well, in this, we, this case, we did a double-blind crossover study that's you know, rare in nutrition because usually you see what you're eating and you, you know, the investigators see what you're eating. But in this case, we used milkshakes. And the milkshakes also were controlled for macronutrients. Um, same protein, fat, and carbohydrate, just with slow versus fast acting. So high glycemic index versus low glycemic index carbohydrate. Corn syrup versus cornstarch, uncooked cornstarch. And uh, so we gave those milkshakes, and they were controlled. We altered the amount of sweetness, artificial sweetener, so that both milkshakes tasted the same sweetness. Gave them in random uh, order to 12 overweight and obese uh, young men, and then uh, monitored their blood sugar, their hunger, and then we looked at the brain. So this slide shows, again, that surge of blood sugar and then it comes down into a relatively low range at that four hours. At that four hour point, oops, at that four hour point, hunger was greater after the high, fast acting milkshake. And then we saw this one area of the brain that lit up. It lit up so strongly, um, every participant showed 
greater activation of this brain area after the fast-acting milkshake than after the low. So we had astronomically strong statistical significance. So what's this area? Well, I'll make the answers easy because I wrote it up here. It's called the nucleus accumbens. What is the nucleus accumbens? I didn't know either. I'm not a neuroscientist. The nucleus accumbens is a very interesting part of the brain. It's the center of the dopamine, dopamine striatal pleasure and reward system. It's considered ground zero for the classic addictions. This area is really um, thought to mediate cocaine, alcoholism, heroin, gambling. Raising a provocative question. You know, of course, we need food to live. You don't need to gamble or drink alcohol to live. But perhaps these very fast-acting carbohydrates are hijacking the reward systems of our brain, creating, in effect, food addiction. But I want to contrast this to the conventional explanation. People say it's because, oh, the food is so tasty, we can't resist. Both of these foods had the same amount of sweetness, and they were consumed four hours ago. So this, point, this study shows that the brain cravings can occur due to the metabolic effects of food, not because necessarily they're so tasty. And let's face it, look, if I said, all right, after this conference you have a choice between McDonald's fast food or a fine, French, uh, fine Italian dinner, I think most people, or even if I didn't give you a choice, I'd say, which tastes better? Most of us, most, of, most Americans would say, you know, the fine Italian meal. But that Mediterranean eating pattern isn't associated with weight gain. Fast food is. So the point is we can get addicted to foods not because they're tasty, but they're because they're hijacking our metabolism. Uh, let's look at animals, because it's tough to do. You can't do highly controlled studies in humans over the long term. There's just too many factors to control. So in this study, we gave rodents who are at risk for type 2 diabetes. Again, diets with the same protein, fat, and carbohydrate, but again, one was fast-acting, the other was slow-acting. Amylopectin was the low, slow-acting carbohydrate. That's a tough starch. I'm sorry, amylose was the slow-acting. That's a tough little molecule that's difficult to digest. Amylopectin is a big fluffy mo molecule that raises, that digests quickly and raises blood sugar. So we gave them these rodents in a randomized fashion in one of these two diets, and we further um, restricted their food intake to keep the weight the same between the groups. So they were gaining weight about the same, and then at about seven weeks into the study, the high glycemic index animals started to gain more weight with the same food. So per the design, we started restricting their food intake. You can see they started eating, we, we gave them less and less food. So by the end of the study, they ate much less food. Yet they gained the same amount of weight. What does that mean about their metabolism? It's slowing down. Okay, so then we looked at their body composition using uh, attritiated water. And despite being the same weight, 
the animals had, that got the high glycemic index diet had 70% more body fat. Now I'm going to show you one graphic picture. There it is. So these two animals weigh the same. The low GI animal had very little belly fat. You can see the organs. The high GI animal, its belly was loaded with this fat and it had sky high heart disease risk factors. Now think about what we did. This animal was gaining too much weight. And so we did what the USDA and every major professional nutrition agency tells us to do. We put that animal on a low calorie diet. And we succeeded in restricting and preventing any excessive weight gain. Despite that, it filled up with fat and had this much increased chronic disease. These findings totally defy the calorie in, calorie out model of obesity. Uh, but does it apply to humans? Is there any evidence that we can alter metabolism based on food quality, not just quantity? In this case, we gave 21 young adults who were studied over seven months a feeding study. So we gave them everything they ate. First, we brought their weight down by 15, 10 to 15%. And then we randomly put them in a crossover fashion on three diets. Low fat with 60% carb, 20% fat. Uh, low fat, low, very low carb, 10% carbohydrate, 60% fat. Now this is per Atkins phase one. This will not be and was not ketogenic. There was a, a very small increase in ketones but the high protein content serves as sub sufficient substrate to prevent the ketogenic drive. Just FYI, because I'm talking to an audience that would actually know the difference. Or a kind of a middle of the road Mediterranean diet at 40% fat. So first off, we just looked at acutely what happened to metabolic fuels. So this is a study that looked at the, what we did here is something that hasn't been done before. We added up calories from all the fuels. Usually we think of glucose, or we think of fatty acids, or we think of ketones, and they're all different, like they all have different octane. Ketones, fatty acids have different energy component content than glucose. So, but you can calculate that, so we did. We added all the calories up, and guess what? We found that basically most people, you know, the people are, you, we run between four and six calories or kilocalories per liter. That's a very, actually very dilute concentration of calories. I think it's turning over very quickly. But there's so little glucose in the bloodstream under normal conditions that you, if you tasted water with that concentration of glucose, it would taste like pure water. You wouldn't be able to taste the sweetness. But it's, again, these are fuels are turning over quickly. So after the meal, of course, the fuels go up and then they come down but after the low-fat meal, they stay down. They, they kind of, they peter out. And so, a few hours later, you have more fuels after a very low-carb or a Mediterranean-type diet than you do after a low-fat, consistent with the prediction of this alternative hypothesis. And when we looked at energy expenditure, and this was with stable isotopes, we found that after weight loss on the low-fat diet, there was this plunge in energy expenditure. That's been well reported. 
about 400 calories a day. On the very low carb diet, there was no decline in energy expenditure at all. It was like the body didn't know it had lost weight. It completely abrogated the starvation response. And then we had an intermediate value with this uh, intermediate diet. I will say that we did see some potential um, adverse couple of uh, potential adverse signs on the very low carb diet. Uh, cortisol levels were highest on that diet, and that was a very strong, strongly significant. You know, you don't want high cortisol for the long term, so I don't know if this is a transient phenomenon or not. But high cortisol over the long term. Uh, is strongly associated with cardiovascular death. It's not good for the brain, it's not good for body composition. Um, but it, it, maybe it was the higher protein, because typical ketogenic diets would have much less protein. Maybe it's transient, so we're gonna need to follow that up. Oh, I just wanted, one other thing we just published in the journal Obesity, we found that the low-carb diet had another interesting effect. It seemed to calm the beta cells down. Not surprisingly, but this hadn't, hasn't been really reported in this way before. The time to maximum insulin release following a standard OGTT. So we gave an OGTT, an oral glucose tolerance test, after each of these diet phases. If you'd been eating the low-carb diet and then you got this bolus of sugar, your beta cells didn't freak out very much. They secreted some insulin, but not a lot and the time to their maximum insulin release was less. So it's like you were protected against an occasional indiscretion. And um, that's what we also saw when if, because remember this diet, these three diets were given in random order. Some people got the low carb diet first. If you got the low carb diet first, then your metabolic rate didn't drop as much when you got the low fat diet. If you got the low-fat diet first, it dropped a lot more, raising the possibility that we may be able to reset metabolism with a low-carb diet even beyond the time that you stop that diet. That might last a month or longer. So maybe people who can't handle any carbohydrate or much carbohydrate in their current state of metabolic dysfunction after a period of time on a low-carb diet, may be able to add some back without the same adverse consequences. You know, and that could be important for those Americans who may not be prepared to follow the rigors of a ketogenic diet. But you may still be able to get benefit. Are you seeking to be in nutritional ketosis and need a pain-free, inexpensive, and non-invasive way to determine whether or not you are effectively burning fat for fuel? Then get your hands on the FDA-registered Class 1 medical device called Ketonics. It's a breath analyzer you can use thousands of times to test for the presence of acetone, the primary ketone body in the breath. It's been developed by a Swedish engineer with epilepsy as an alternative to the failed urine ketone strips and the expensive blood ketone strips. Ketonics is the first and best way to test for nutritional ketosis in the breath. Plus, you'll be able to chart your readings into convenient data to customize your ketogenic diet to you. Get your hands on the Ketonics 2015 in red or blue in North America for $150 at ketonics.co or get your Ketonics in the rest of the world at ketonics.com. 
All right, what about the long-term diet studies? I'm kind of going to move to the final phase of my talk and leave a little time for questions. Um, well, the long-term diet studies have given rise to this notion that diet doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you eat as long as you comply. Right? You've heard that, right? Yes? No? Maybe? Yeah. I mean, that's what they all say, right? It doesn't matter. Pick a diet, just stick to it. Every diet will work as long as you stick to it. So how did they get that notion? Well, it's from studies like this, and this is the granddaddy of all studies that have given rise to this notion. The Pounds Loss Study. Who's heard of that study, the Pounds Loss Study? Anybody? A few? All right. Well, what is this study? Let's just walk through this. A lot of, lot of people, 800 people. That's a lot for a diet study. Uh, overweight or obese, two years. They were assigned to diets that were ranged from 35 to 65% carbohydrate, 20 to 40 fat, 15 to 25 protein. Now that's not the full range you can get. You know, we got a much bigger range in the study that we, I just showed you. But this is a real life setting. And you know, if you can't see something by altering carbohydrate that much, okay, you know, maybe you could say within prevailing ranges, we don't see any effects, doesn't matter. Okay, so, so far so good, right? Intervention was counseling, behavioral counseling. They told people what to do. Didn't give them food, they just said, this is what you should do, and this is how you do it. Now go do it, that's what they did. They report no difference in body weight in any of the groups. All right, diet doesn't matter, except this is, my, this is like the devil in the detail slide. The study has major design limitations. They did not achieve their dietary targets. That's a big one. So the observed, the reported fat intake at maximum, so it's not, it's self-report, and it's the maximum self-report during this two-year period, wasn't 20 to 40% a 20% difference in fat and a 30% difference in carbs. It was a 9% difference in fat, a 5% difference in protein. But even these small differences are probably overestimated due to social desirability bias. What happens if you recruit people into a study? You tell one group to follow a low-fat diet. You give them financial compensation for following that low-fat diet. And then you ask them, what kind of a diet are you following? What do you think they're gonna say? <laughs> All right, so the biomarkers, which give us a more objective measure, no difference in triglycerides. We know that triglycerides are a highly sensitive marker of carbohydrate intake. No significant difference, there was a, a trend, but a non-significant difference in nitrogen excretion. Well, that pretty much says that the protein difference was pretty minimal. And the RQ was different, but pretty small. So what I think this a more plausible argument is this is a, from a, um, an efficacy study, a failed study. It didn't establish differentiation between the diets. Now imagine you were trying to test a new promising cancer drug. 
Maybe it's going to be a, a cure for childhood cancer. Uh, but when you, the, the group that was assigned to get the drug never really took it. Like, they told them, oh, get it from the pharmacy, but the pharmacy didn't have it, or they couldn't afford it, or, you know, they just never really got convinced that it was going to work. So they never took the drug, and the two groups, placebo and drug group, didn't show any difference in cancer rates. Should we dismiss that drug as um, hopeless? Or should we dismiss the study as failed? You know, so we would never make this mistake in pharmacological research. And yet, time and again, the significance of dietary composition is dismissed based on behavioral studies. We have to do better. And it has been done better on a few occasions. The direct study was also published in the New England Journal of Medicine about the same time as Pounds Lost, and also by colleagues at the School of Public Health at Harvard. The, both studies were done uh, in part by those folks. Uh, 322 adults, two years, low-fat Mediterranean or low-carb diet, kind of like the JAMA study I showed you, only this was over two years, not one-month arms. This was done in Israel at a nuclear power facility where you would check in for the day and you'd stay there all day. And in Israel, they kind of had their main meal around the midday. It's kind of a more of a, you know, an Israeli thing, Middle Eastern thing. So that's when they fed people. So they could control at least probably 50% of their calories. They could assure that they were eating differently. And then they did some other things to improve differentiation. They got excellent completion rates. And now we're not seeing all diets are alike. Uh, and I should say that the, you know, the adherence wasn't perfect. It's not like they were truly following a full-on low-carb diet, but at least they got some differentiation. And so maybe they would have gotten even more bigger results, but they got very significant results. The low-carb diet produced the fastest weight loss, uh, outpaced the other two diets. The Mediterranean 40% middle diet was a little slower, but it caught up. So maybe the low-carb diet here was the, was the hare, and the Mediterranean diet was the tortoise. They wound up exactly the same. The low-fat diet was out floating in the Dead Sea all by itself. And uh, here's a study of glycemic, of glycemic load. This is the largest study done, the, the uh, Diogene study. So they took uh, adults, 773 from eight European countries, so pretty broad generalizability brought their weight down first by 8%, and then randomly assigned them to diets that ranged in protein and glycemic index. So let's walk through this. The high protein, low GI, is going to be the lowest glycemic load, right? If you have more protein, you have less carbohydrate. The fat was the same in all of these. The high glycemic load was low protein, high GI, and then we had the intermediate combinations. So this study looks at weight loss maintenance after that decrease. The low glycemic load diet showed perfect weight loss maintenance over 26 weeks, half a year. That's very unusual. 
The high glycemic load diet showed the most rapid weight regain, and the two intermediate groups showed intermediate values. This is like a dose response curve. You never see this in nutrition research. It's like giving a, a drug. That is pretty impressive to me. And this was done with partial food provision, again, to improve the likelihood that they're getting true differentiation between the diets. All right, so I've argued that these processed carbs are raising insulin, driving fat cells into a feeding frenzy. They're sucking up calories. That's making us hungry, driving down energy expenditure. But there are also other things that can alter the either insulin secretion or the anabolic state of fat cells. Types of fatty acids, the types and amounts of protein, micronutrients, phytochemicals, pre probiotics, everybody's talking about the gut microbiome, so I'm not going to be remiss in that regard. Here's one about saturated fat and polyunsaturated. Now I'm not, please, I'm not going to go on record as for or against saturated fat or omega-6 here in this talk. I'm not going to do that in this talk. I'm just showing you one study. You interpret it any way you wish. Um, because this is, and I'm not trying to be selective, this is the one study that looks at this well about fatty acid effects. So they gave, in a double-blind fashion, 39 adults, um, either muffins, which either were made with safflower oil, which is a lot of PUFA, and especially O6, omega-6, or palm oil, which is a lot of saturated fat. So they overfed them. So they stuffed, you know, got them to eat more than they needed, 750 calories. And of course they gained weight, but they gained more fat when eating the saturated fat rather than the polyunsaturated fat. They gained more lean tissue on the polyunsaturated fat, and they had more liver fat with the saturated fat. Okay, I will just say that all saturated fats aren't alike, first of all. Uh, secondly, I, I believe that the combination of carbohydrate and saturated fat is a bad one. Saturated fat does, certain saturated fats have potent inflammatory effects uh, in many experimental models. Uh, but it really may be the interaction of the two. So bread and butter is bad. Um, Although, I think the epi is pretty clear that if you had to get rid of one, get rid of the bread. The butter is the less unhealthful component of the two. And it may be in the context of a ketogenic diet, these lipids, your fat is being oxidized so quickly that saturated fat doesn't stay around very long to cause any met met much metabolic problem. Um, I think there's a lot of individual variability. That's, this, is, these are, this is the third talk that we're not going to have today. Um, you know, I really like the feeling of being on a ketogenic diet, and my LDL explodes. And it's, the particles are a little bit fluffy, but they're, they're fluffy, but there are a whole lot of particles when I'm eating a ketogenic diet. And maybe uh, I'm one of those people who are very, very sensitive to high intakes of saturated fat, and you know, there one could do ketogenic diets with very different, differing amounts. So, so many interesting questions. But I just bring this up to say that it's not just the nature of the carbohydrates we're eating, but the nature of the fats we're eating that can affect our metabolism independent 
of calories. All calories, obviously, are not alike from a biological perspective. So, um, oh, sleep, stress, physical activity, let's throw those in too, because they're going to affect the fat cells. So I want to summarize the conventional approach to weight loss, the calorie-restricted diet doesn't work in an environment of calorie abundance. An alternative approach aims to reduce anabolic drive and body fat with ad libitum conditions by targeting fat cells. And you can do this by either lowering total carbohydrate or lowering glycemic index or both and other qualitative changes to diet and, other, and changes to lifestyle. The findings from the behavioral trials have to be interpreted cautiously because they typically fail to establish differentiation. And we need future research to compare the effects of calorie restriction with, a, with ad libitum diets that focus on quality. We also need, of course, studies that compare reduced carbohydrate but not ketogenic diets with ketogenic diets to see if there are qualitatively greater benefits once you cross that ketogenic threshold and whether that occurs in most people or some people and whether there are side effects in some people. So great stuff. Like, you know, I would love to create, you know, for, the, for one tenth the cost of taking a drug into development, just $100 million, we could set up a nice institute and get to the bottom of some of this stuff. And then we'd need a lot less of those drugs. So I want to just end by saying that the ideas that I presented to you may be provocative, although maybe not so much for this audience, but they've also been around for some time. The editors of a leading medical journal said this. When we, when we read that the, and this is what they read from another source, that the fat woman has the remedy in her own hands or rather between her own teeth, I guess, I guess people were snarky um, way back. There is an implication that obesity is merely the result of unsatisfactory dietary bookkeeping, you know, calories in, calories out. Although logic suggests that body fat may be decreased by altering the balance sheet through diminished intake or increased output, output or both, the problem is not really so simple and uncomplicated as it is pictured. And this was spoken, written by the editors of JAMA in 1924. And I'd also like to just say that, uh, as you heard, I have a new book out. It uh, uh, just came out this month, and it's called Always Hungry. It presents all the science behind everything you just heard, including a, uh, a three-phase program to put this into effect. The first phase is uh, pretty low carbohydrate, but not ketogenic. It's 50% fat, 25% carbohydrate, and then you, we have you titer your carbohydrate until you reach a tipping point. So that's uh, available, I guess, for sale, and I'd be happy to sign books afterward. And uh, thank you for your attention, and let me know if you have any questions. Do you mind, since I don't know a lot of people here, if you, you mind just announcing your name and where you're from? I'm Richard Feynman. I thought I recognized you. <laughs> I, I am in big trouble now. <laughs> oh, I see we're out of time. Uh, <laughs> Nobody's leaving.
But let me just so, so just to make sure I've got you. So, so you're suggesting that there are components of the nutrition establishment that um, disagree violently with each other. <laughs> yeah. Look. You know. I mean, nutrition is one of the. You know. In the like, it reminds me of what, who was the president? Um, Wilson. Who was the president? Who was like a professor? Wilson. He said, politics in, in academia are like politics in Washington, only worse because there's so much less to fight about. Um, you know, actually, there's a lot to fight about here. We're talking, we're fighting about public health. And uh, in the absence of high quality research, we can selectively cite any kind of study we want. You know, I just tried to, you know, I, I, well, the person who did the Pound's Law study won't be happy with me after what I've said. But, you know, um, we, there, is, there is that. And there's also our ego as scientists. We all get attached to our positions. You know, if you spend a lifetime advocating a position and some whippersnapper comes along, like, I used to be young. And I used to, like, when I, early in my career, I started with glycemic index. And I'd be writing these grants. And the NIH study section would keep coming back. I remember my first grant said, glycemic index didn't work in the 80s for diabetes. Why should it work in the 90s for obesity? You know, like, we're all entrenched in such um, political infighting. I don't think that's unique to the glycemic index community. Ultimately, we need to establish nutrition research on a much higher level of rigor. Uh, you know, I think you've got to obviously great, you know, you could help guide us in there. And it's going to, but it's going to take more money. Because as long as we are so in, beholden to the food industry, so many nutrition researchers get so much money from the food industry, it's really tough to do the right kinds of studies. But you may have a rebuttal. Well, it's not a rebuttal. That didn't make me happy. You want to plan on the same side as you had or not. I want to be a neutral arbiter, and I want to call the balls and strikes. And I ultimately believe that there is enough individual variability. And I think one of the things I'm most interested in is inherent insulin secretion. 
that it will explain why actually some people do perfectly well on a low-fat diet. It's just not representative of most of the public. But we've got to understand that individual variability and be willing to embrace that in our work. Yeah. Well, I'm going to get. All right, I'm going to get. I'm going to get. I, I'm. I've really blown it now. Next. Next question. So, so one of the more. I'm Larry Pendel from MIT Lincoln Laboratory. Uh, one of the more sobering plots that you showed uh, was the one that back to the '60s and showed the change in the fat composition in our diets. Uh, the reason I think it's sobering is it actually looked more like the pound plus study than the other ones that you showed. It wasn't that dramatic. We went from about 40 percent fat to 30 percent fat. If you indict the pound plus study as is not really being a sufficient intervention, what does that say about the experiment we've done since the '60s? Yeah, no, okay. I, I, I think I, I tried to make this point that that does not prove, association did not prove causality. Uh, you know, we went from about 42% to about 31% um, right now. But actually, that is a massive change in the food supply, especially when you compare, when you consider that it wasn't reducing fat and replacing it with fruits, vegetables, and legumes. It was replacing it with sugar, added sugar, and highly processed starch. So the glycemic load of our diet has demonstrably exploded. And that doesn't, those, so those slides don't prove, that image doesn't prove causality, but it raises the question. That's all, my point, that, that um, our primary focus on reducing dietary fat backfired. Eric Westman, Durham, North Carolina. I looked back at our 2004 annals of internal medicine paper, and we dropped some out of the low-carb group because the LDL went up 100 points. I look at that now, and I laugh. We should have kept them in. And because Jeff Bullock's work is the best to read about how the low-carb diet reduces cardiometabolic risk by lowering the triglyceride and raising the HDF. We may have stopped your wonderful ketosis experiment prematurely on your own. However, no researcher should use their own personal story to color what they see out there too much. I, I'm not, I'm not, I, 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 first of all, I'm not trying to color anything. I'm fascinated with uh, nutritional ketosis. That's why I'm at this conference, because I really am very interested, and I spend personally a substantial amount of my did you want to say something before I finish? Well, if you say you're worried about LDL went up on your, by yourself yeah. or on yourself, other people will be worried about it too. And, and, and so just make sure to get the whole cardiomet off. Well, I tried to. I'm saying that, that we, I recognize, first of all, that particle size tends to increase, um, that there are many metabolic benefits to reducing carbohydrate. That's really 90% of what I, I was trying to focus on, um, and that there is, I believe, a great deal of variability, and if Richard Feynman is still around and he, I can uh, recruit him to my defense, we have to embrace the possibility that ketosis is not optimal for everybody, and that there may be people for whom um, adverse effects, and there's, uh, I, I discussed this, you know, I think, and I, I hope I give low carbohydrate diets a very positive spin in my book, because my first phase is pretty low, but I point out the studies, I point out the studies that show, I point out the studies that show genetic variation that seems to explain who's gonna get into trouble with a lot of saturated fat, um, and who does well with the, the, the few people who may do well with low fat diets. I also wanted to point out, um, I think in the study that you 
first study I showed the, the yeah. It was one when you had dextrose added, one with right. pre-symmetrical yeah. to lower the GI. Yeah. Which, if you lower, if you lower the GI, what you see is I, I, oh, absolutely. This was in a that was uh, this was our first study. I designed it in 1996, and um, I was trying to. It was a proof of principle, and I was trying to lower GI as much. Lowering GI by adding fructose and fruits is kind of defeating the purpose because yes, you're lowering the GI and you're preventing uh, the blood sugar spike, but you're also um, increasing triglycerides. And still I think that's, it's a fair point as to, you know, so I totally agree that dumping in fructose um, is not a helpful move. But when you say it defeats the purpose, the purpose of that study was not to assess the overall healthfulness of those three meals. It was to examine how differences in the excursion of insulin produced by isocaloric meals could... It's isocaloric, but it's differing in the type of sugar. So, of course, fructose is going to have a lower impact on uh, insulin than uh, dextrose, but you're saying that's because of the low GI. It's, 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 it is, but it isn't because you're adding fructose, which, uh, of course, is not going to increase the insulin as much as fructose. Okay. Hi, uh, Jeff Bolton, Taiwan again. A couple of questions. One of the things that, that I noticed is these graphs that keep looking at, looking at obesity, et cetera. It reminds me of a, of a meeting I was in a while back where they showed this incidence of obesity and diabetes that correlated, correlated directly with the embargo on Cuba and changing our sugar source to high fructose corn syrup. So, so one of the questions that I had is how much of this is driven by high fructose corn syrup? And in that particular presentation, there was some really great evidence that showed that you had a change in the epithelial layer of the gut, gut leakiness, and this was causing quite a bit of of um, inflammation, etc. The other thing that I wanted to ask was um, looking at fermentable fiber. So, saw some great studies looking at inulin and postprandial glucose uptake, which is similar to what you've shown in your changing of your diets to a low glycemic index. So, therefore, you can take a higher glycemic index diet but consume a fermentable fiber at the same time and blunt the sugar increase and subsequent insulin increase. And with that, give you the same effect as some of the things that you were looking at. And then lastly, it's a one, but I think one of the best ways for anybody to find clients is to look at class on using a metabolomics approach. We happen to be the best in the world, but there's some cheaper outfits out there. But we clearly pick up compliance and diets as well as any drug therapy better than anybody else. Okay, well, let me just see if I can uh, respond to your first point, and then maybe we, in the interest of time, we're already over time and there's one more person, we could discuss your second, your other point later. But your first point, how much of this is fructose and sugar? Um, and so I'm going to add to my political disclosures, the first disclosure was I am not anti-saturated fat. Um, and when I make my own bulletproof coffee, I use ghee, which is and uh, capric acid, so I have a huge saturated fat, so there's more personal experience. So I'm not anti-saturated fat, I'm not, and I'm not pro-fructose. Um, but that said, so I think clearly fast-acting fruit, and I wrote a commentary about this for JAMA. My, you know, my feeling is that fruits are pretty protective 
you know, from the public health. And I'm not talking about people with metabolic dysfunction, you know, or who need more extreme measures. But when you look at the epi, and when you look at the few feeding studies with whole fruit, everything seems to get better. There's some very interesting South African study. They put people on 20 servings of fruit a day. They got 200 grams of fructose. That would have made Rob Lustig have a seizure. And their CVD risk factors improved. With whole fruit, that fructose slips in and I don't think exceeds the liver's capacity. You don't spill over into de novo lipogenesis and inflammatory pathways. But that said, you know, this notion that it's all about fructose, I think is false. I mean, first of all, if that were the case, nobody would be here. You wouldn't be in ketosis. You'd just get rid of fructose, you'd eat all the white bread you want, and you'd have zero ketones. Clearly, the glycemic impact of carbohydrate is also a key player. And, if fru and I'll go one step further. If fructose were the dominant factor in our diet, glycemic index should be associated with benefit. Because as uh, the woman in the back um, by the door said correctly, fructose is going to lower your, you know, maybe artificially, but it's going to lower your apparent glycemic load in an epidemiological study. And so people eating a lot of fructose would have a low glycemic low diet and they should be looking really bad. But that's not what we see. We see pretty consistent associations in the best cohort studies between higher glycemic index despite the fact that that glycemic index is being brought down by fructose. So I think the bottom line is it's really <coughs> both and there is tremendous individual variability to get this full picture. Sarah, we've been like, have we been like on the? On Twitter. We yes. Well, see, like. You know, when I when I when I wrote the, when I wrote my book, I was told I have to create a social media presence. So I went from zero to I think I've got like all of three thousand now. So that's wow. But um, yeah, so you meet these people. Well, so so anyway, my question going back to fruit. First, let me say on the individual variability, um, I totally. Initially, 
But when we're looking at this chronic elevation in insulin levels, and that's where I wonder if the problem really comes in. Does, does that well, um, I mean, I mean, a couple of things. First of all, I, I certainly agree that um, there are people for whom, uh, you know, fruit is adding to their metabolic burden. And so people in practice, like you, if, you know, you may see an enriched group of people because they're not getting response from conventional nutritionists and MDs, and so they're seeking out people and then they concentrate around us, and that's what we see. You know, I believe that, that there's also, you know, we can also be thinking about, so when we think about public health, there are a lot of people who seem to be able to tolerate fruit very well. Now, maybe you could ask, if they got rid of the fruit and instead had olive oil, would they do even better? But that's not a public health trade-off that's gonna happen anytime soon. You know, when people eat less fruit, they tend to eat more processed carbohydrates. And so, from, so I think we ask, have to ask a public health question, which is, do we want to tell the country, stop eating fruit? Or do we want to, or is fruit actually, as it's operating whole fruits, in the scheme of things, a beneficial influence for many people, and yet there are a segment of people who have more intense metabolic function for whom no fruit is best. And I think these are unresolved issues. Well, we don't have to say no fruit for anyone, but we could say no fruit for you. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. And we could make it more with our patients because there's so many of them yeah. who are diabetic yeah. or other yeah. metabolic yeah. diseases yeah. that, you know, that we should be looking yeah. But, you know, great question. This is, yeah. It's, it's great. This is a great, great question for, you know, for debate and. Uh, Unfortunately, I guess we're out of time, but... I think we are. I'm sorry. Dr. Boros, maybe you can grab Dr. Boros. Oh, you were saying afterward? Uh, okay. Do you have one really quick question? Would that be okay? So, um, <laughs> you, you weren't very definitive there. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> so, um, glucose is really interesting because it seems like uh, it works like in the rental cycle, um, um, glucose and, and, for example, fatty acids. So fructose can compromise glucose oxidation, and the FDA had a great interest in this, and we studied this with the FDA. Now we also used 13 stilated fructose to see what's the fate of fructose in cells, and we published that. And it's actually making more fat in adipose tissue, and also about their, their fruits. It's important to differentiate between fruits that are grown in June versus in September. So there's four times more fructose glucose ratio change from as we go through the season. And simply it's, uh, it's, it's a dietary advantage to eat fructose in the spring when animals get ready to hibernate and we need to build up on unkind fat. So all these issues are very critical, very important, and needs to be treated in a, in a very solid biochemical context because obviously fructose glucose interchange through isomerase is really not an interchangeable reaction. So in that sense, I just wanted to add this as we study both fructose and glucose metabolism in response to one or the other and, and they have great biological effects. Okay, thank you for the point and yeah. 
Coming up next time on the Lemon Levita Low Carb Show, Dr. Adam Hartman will be here to share his lecture from the 2016 Tampa Metabolic Therapeutics Conference. Get show notes for today's episode at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review at iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Livin' La Vida Low Carb Show. We'll see you next time. Disc of Light.